All right. Well, thank you for being a part of the room. Thank you for being a part of the room if you're online. Uh, my name is Ryan. Let me introduce myself. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. If you're tuning in for the first time, if you came out here for the first time, that is awesome. I'm looking around. I don't know if you came out here for the first time or not. You're all wearing masks, so I'm not sure. Um, truth be told, I probably wouldn't even know. I know I've been here a little over a year, but it's just been a weird year, okay? But uh, if you by chance are, this is your first time, welcome. And if you're first time logging in, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of it, uh, our gathering tonight. Uh, if you are online or if you're in the room, I'd love it if you'd take a selfie of yourself, uh, pull out your phone, snap a photo of you connecting and joining us. We put these photos up uh, in our room so that everybody can be aware that it's not just the people that are present that are a part of our church. And uh, send that to me. And every time I get one of those selfies, wherever you are, put your name with it. And I pray for you uh, by name and it helps me. And I love to do that. And it's, it's sometimes it's encouraging just to know that somebody's praying for you. So if you'd like to do that, that'd be awesome. Send it to this number. If you want to write it down, 207-608-1106. And that is my cell phone number. And uh, I don't care. Give it to whoever you want. That's fine. I, you know, I have no problems not answering texts. So um, I have, no, but I, I love for that to be on. And you know what? It's been great. Some of you have sent me texts throughout the week uh, that have been encouraging and I've been able to pray for you and that's awesome. So take a selfie, send it to me with your name. I'll pray for you and we'll make sure everybody can see your face as well. We're working on something pretty cool. These walls that you see by us are hopefully going to become video walls soon, not video, like we're not buying monitors, but we're working on a way in which people can put up their webcams and while they're joining us, join us digitally so we can see them. So that would be fun for us in the room. And so we're working on that technology. And if you're at home online, everybody in the room was just like, oh, cool, that'll be awesome. Because uh, we want to be aware of you as well. And not just me, we know you're there, but we'd love for everybody in the room to be encouraged by that. All right, so we're in a teaching series called Hope is Open. And uh, I've got to tell you, this is going to be a weird talk, all right? So everybody just go, okay, it's going to be a weird talk, all right? Um, <laughs> I just realized there were clocks for everything that we've done so far except this part. So I'm trying to look up and like, when do I have to be finished? Uh, this is going to be a weird uh, talk because it's part two of last week. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a recap of last week, and then I'm going to get into some super practical things because uh, that's the way this talk is going to be. So it's a little strange. If you weren't here last week, you won't be too lost, probably no more so than anybody else in the room who was here last week. But we're going to cover a bunch of stuff. This is like a big, broad overview from about 50,000 feet of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, all right? And so we're going to get super practical. Speaking of 50,000 feet, uh, there's a, a theologian scholar named Dallas Willard. You might have heard of this person. You might not have. It's no big deal. Uh, he's written a ton of books and a ton of thoughts on this thing called discipleship. And uh, in one of the books, he opens up with this wonderful story. He talks about uh, uh, an airplane, a fighter jet, right? out doing maneuvers. They're flying around and they're doing all types of things that just, they're in this like training mode. And as they're going, this uh, jet decides to do a complete straight ascent into the air, just to go straight up. And so they turn there and they go straight up. The problem is they forgot that they were flying upside down. And in an attempt to fly straight up, they flew straight down into the ground. Now, I don't think that's true, but it is an interesting parable. And here's, here's the thing. I think this is just me personally, and I think there's some others that agree with me in my line of work, but if Christianity is meant to reflect the real teachings of Christ, the Christ, the eternal Christ that was fully made fully known through Jesus, right? If that's the reality of what Christianity is meant to be, the Western evangelical church, we might be flying upside down. 
And we might be pulling a, 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 a quick ascent thinking we're going in the right direction when we're actually headed for a nosedive and a massive crash. And this series is my attempt in some ways to say to our church, how do we write that as a church? Now, I talk about Western evangelicalism because that's my heritage. That's what I'm in. And so I can't really talk about other, uh, other strands of faith because I'm not part of that. But part of being in something is being able to critique it to make it better. And that's really what I feel like we're at this pivotal moment in the life of the church of what does it really mean to follow the teachings of Jesus. And that's what has launched the series. And, and, and as our church has been in transition, what does the future of our church look like for the next decade, 15 years? How do we express this? How do we, how do we look at it and say, hey, we're not flying upside down, right? We know that we're moving in the right way and in the right direction. And that's why we've been talking about peacemaking, because Jesus said peacemakers will be called children of God. Peacemakers will be called children of God. People who create wholeness in this world will be called children of God. And that comes from a, a, a part of scripture called the Beatitudes, which we'll look at in a moment. But a few weeks ago, the first week of this, we launched with hope is hidden when peace is broken. That if we're a space that wants to bring hope when peace is broken, when we break the wholeness and fullness of humanity, there's a problem. And how does that happen? We said, well, it's selfishness and arrogance. We looked at some scripture verses that show us it's our selfishness that produced this. And then the third week, we jumped into some real deep kind of theology around resurrection and death and atonement and incarnation. What does all that mean? And we said, hey, all of it means is that there is a universal path to wholeness that is available to everyone, that is for everyone. And we just have to trust the mystery of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that it's fun to explore how it works. It's fun to talk about those things, but it's not the doctrine that is important. It's the fact that we live in the truth of it, that it is a demonstration of God's love for all of us, that it is a universal opening to every person on this planet, regardless of religion, regardless of sexuality, regardless of economics, regardless of gender. It's for everyone, right? And then last week, we started to unpack this scripture verse, Micah 6, 7, and 8, or Micah 6, 8, which says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And we said, Jesus was the perfect image of this. Jesus lived this out perfectly, and that the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus gives the program for us the practical ways in which we live it out. And so last week, our point was the disciples. We asked the question, right? What does it mean to be a disciple of the Prince of Peace? We said, well, disciples learn to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly by following the path of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. That was kind of where we ended. And I gave this kind of, this is how it hits our lives is we actually make a commitment to live what we'll call the blessed life of an everyday normal peacemaker. And you say, well, what is that? Well, the good news is that's what I'm going to talk about for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> what does that mean to commit to the blessed life of an everyday normal peacemaker? And so we're going to look at the works, the actual things that we're called to do that lead to what's called the blessed life, right? And, and it's everyday normal stuff, right? It's in our everyday normal stuff. Remember I said last week, this isn't about doing something new. It's about doing everything in a new way. Right? So it's not about going, getting a new job. It's not about starting a nonprofit. It's not about you know, doing everything. It's about saying, I'm going to do everything in a new way with a new understanding. So I first want to unpack this idea of what is the blessed life? What is the blessed life? Now, uh, I know you all, before I got here, did this huge series on the blessed life, and, and, and that's an angle. And I haven't even listened to that, so I'm not 
I'm not trying to say anything and that was wrong. I'm going to talk about it very specifically as it relates to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, which is the Beatitudes. And maybe you've heard of these. If you're tuning in, if you're here on a Thursday, there's a good chance you're kind of a church person and you've heard of these things we call the Beatitudes. They have things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful. And they usually come with like a promise following it, right? And so I want to just, first of all, talk about that. What does that mean? Because that really, I think, is what Jesus is offering us. Jesus is offering us a life that is blessed or this blessed life. And it's oftentimes translated as blessed or happy. Now, can we pause and say, well, that's kind of ambiguous. (laughs) What does that mean to say blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the merciful or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? All these are part of those beatitudes. What does that actually mean to be blessed? Well, some translations have called it happy. Let's be honest. Are you really happy when you're, I mean, Luke says poor, Matthew says poor in spirit because Matthew's writing to middle-class people and he's like, let's not mess with their money. Like Matthew's smart enough, right? He's like, he softens it. (laughs) If you read the difference, like Luke's talking to the poor and he's saying, hey, if you're poor, like you are blessed, but is it really happy? When you suffer, are you happy? There's something about that that's a little hollow and shallow, right? But so let me talk about this word. There's a word here that's used in the Greek that here's what it meant in, in everyday life, because, you know, people spoke this language, right? Like Jesus is, it's actually being written in Greek. Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. Uh, he, he probably didn't read. There's a really good chance Jesus didn't know how to read. Uh, he, he grew up in kind of a, a poor working kind of environment. It'd be highly unlikely that Jesus knew how to read. He probably spoke in Aramaic. He might have spoken Greek. I don't know. But the Bible was written in Greek because that was the common language, And in the common language, the word that is used here refers to, first and foremost, this, the happy state of the gods. So if you were to walk up to a a Roman, right, if you were to walk up to somebody who's speaking Greek and they said, oh, you know, be blessed, whatever it might be, this word meant like, oh, you should live like the gods above earthly toils, right? So the state of the gods were, the gods were distant. They were above the pain and labor and toils of this world. And it eventually also came to be understood as the folks who had died and had gone and attained this afterlife with the gods, that they were no longer participating in the toils and the labors of this world. So that's what this word actually meant in kind of like your normal everyday life. So poets would write about it. In fact, it stopped being, it fell out of use in a lot of classical Greek because it became so commonplace, right? So to be blessed was to live above the toils, to be like the gods, right? And so Jesus here, when he's saying blessed, he's actually saying there is a divine life that you can have. And the neat thing about Jesus, I like to use the word neat every now and then. The neat thing about Jesus is he's saying you don't actually have to die. (laughs) Not physically, because he talks about this kingdom of God, this blessed life in the kingdom that's now that's being brought in, that that's what he's exposing. And now it develops, this idea of the divine life develops. And in Peter, we have two letters in the New Testament that are written in the name of Peter. And in 2 Peter, this is what it says, through these, he has bestowed on us the precious and very great promises so that through them, you may come to share in the divine nature. Now the church in its earliest forms used to call this divination, 
right? This idea of becoming divine. Now, you would never become God, but it was this idea that you have this nature that you can live into, right? And you can actually become and, and flow in this space. And I think it's that same idea of the blessed life, the divine life. Paul would use this type of language in his letter to the church in Colossae. He would say, you have died, remember, the dead who've gone to be in uh, the place of the gods where they're living above toil and above labor and above the cares of this world. You have died and your life is, he says, hidden with Christ in God. This is all, I think, uh, this big concept of idea that the blessed life is actually a life that right now for Jesus is sharing in the divine life. That what you're being offered is a path into the divine life, into living out this kingdom of God here on earth. Heaven is here, right? For Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about some forest place, talking about right here, right present. And so in a translation of like Matthew 5, verse 7, where it says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy, or maybe happier the merciful. I've seen translations, and I think this maybe encapsulates the whole Beatitudes a little bit better for us, that the divine life in Christ, the divine life in Christ is offered to those who are gracious and merciful. So the divine life, this life that Christ has for you to live above the worries and the cares and the concerns of this world, it's available to those who are merciful. And such people will be treated in a merciful and gracious manner. You see the difference? It's not that I'm going to walk around being happy. Yay, you know, look at me. People are persecuting me. It's so awesome, Right? But there's this understanding that I have this peace and I am living in the divine nature of God. I'm, it's inside of me. I'm living in the kingdom, which is around me. That's my invitation. My invitation into the kingdom is mercy. I, be, I am merciful, therefore I live in mercy. I can hold on to that. And, and throughout the Beatitudes, we find the attitudes and the behaviors that produce this divine life, this invitation, things like humility, being sensitive to others, being patient, being unsatisfied, says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger. That's, that's it. I'm not satisfied with what the world has for me. I want more. To be merciful, to be full of integrity, of character, to be an activist, to do the work. These are all ways in which we live and are ushered into this life. And that's Matthew 5, 1 through 13, right? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about now, okay, if we understand this idea of this invitation into the divine life of God, well, what does that look like in our everyday normal life? What are the works that lead to the blessed life? So this is the blessed life. The blessed life is filled with mercy. The blessed life is filled with uh, a, a poor in, being poor in spirit and a humility. The blessed life is filled with activism. So what leads to that? What are the things that I have to do? And I want to talk about the sweet 16. I'm going to go through these fast. Now, you might want to go and go to that gatherings page because there's an outline and on that page, it lists the verses from Matthew 5 and 7, where I'm taking this from, but I'm not going to read those verses because I don't have time. Do you want me to read, you know, 80 verses? You want to go home and finish the football game or whatever it is, or you want to log off and have dessert. But so I would encourage you, you're going to have to put on your thinking hats because what I want to just give you is this 50,000 foot view of this is the program that God has given us through Jesus. These are the works that lead to the blessed life. This is the way in which we do things. And I think if we take these seriously, these 16 things, and we don't take them as law, like if I do this, God loves me. If I do this, I don't. I'm, no, these are just, this is it. You want to live in the divine life. Here's what it is. And it's pretty cool what it says, because there's nothing in this about what you wear. There's nothing in this about where you go to church. 
There's nothing in this about how much money you should or shouldn't have. There's nothing in this church about who you should marry. There's nothing. I mean, it's just, it's pretty interesting, like the principles that are here that we live out. So here we go. Are you ready now? I've, I've taken Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through the end of chapter 7, and I've divided it into three categories. What do you think they are? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. So of the things that Jesus says, here's what you got to do. I think they all relate to this. And so I've put it in the, the justice is this idea, this is what everyone deserves, regardless of their faith, their religion, their geography, their sexuality. This is justice, this is what everyone deserves to have. Mercy is grace, what we don't deserve, what we do because this is what God gives to us. So it's getting what I don't deserve <laughs> because God is good and love is good. And then walk humbly with God, I think deals with the big questions of religion and this like vertical relationship with God, all right? So what are the things that Jesus says? What are the works that we do every day in our normal life to do justice, right? Number one, this is what, I'm gonna go through these really quick. I've, I've kind of worded them that I think they'll help us understand. He says, don't treat people like they're objects. So Jesus talks about divorce and he talks about lust. I don't think the point is divorce and lust. I think it's a bigger thing. He says, don't treat people like they're objects. You can't throw them away. They're not there for you to be used. So don't treat people like they're objects. Treat everyone with kindness and decency. We call this the golden rule. Why do we treat everyone with kindness and decency? Is it because they deserve it? Yes. Why do they deserve it? Because they're good people, because they never make mistakes? No, because they're made in the image of God. So we treat people with kindness and decency, everyone, because that's what we would want to be treated with. Do the good work of justice publicly, regardless of consequences. So I stand up for what is just, regardless of what my culture, my society says to me. Jesus would take, talk about it in terms like this. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Let your good work so shine before men that they would know who your heavenly father is. So we shouldn't hide our good works because it's not popular with our people group. Right? We shouldn't hide our good works because, you know, the people who vote like me wouldn't appreciate it. No, we do this publicly is what Jesus is saying. Keep your word. I know this is super impractical stuff. <laughs> Why do we keep our word? Because every person deserves to know that we're trusted, that if we say we're going to do something, we follow through. We keep our word. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's how he talked about it. So those are the works of justice. Now, in some senses, those are quite simple, right? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> We just raise our hand. Anybody ever broken a promise, right? Anybody ever lusted? Anybody ever thought of someone like an object to be thrown around a pawn in a game of chess? Ooh, I'm guilty of that one. But these are the things that produce justice in our world. If we do these with the decisions that we have to make every day, when I'm faced with, do I post some nasty response that is unkind on Facebook to the person who believes differently than I do politically? We've just broken Jesus' understanding of what it means to be a disciple, right? So while it's simple, it is not easy. So what are the works of mercy? What does it mean to love mercy in your everyday normal life? What's the program that God gives us? So here's the merciful things that I believe Jesus teaches all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You confront evil behavior with grace and generosity, right? We confront evil behavior. Jesus would talk in terms of turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, when someone wants your cloak, you give them your garment as well, right? Your robe as well. These are ways in which we actually confront evil behavior, but we confront it not as the world does in an upside down airplane driven way. We confront with grace and generosity. And let me just ask you the question, where are you, are you seeing a lot of grace and generosity from the Western evangelical church right now? <laughs> 
If I'm honest, I just, I, I'm missing it a lot. I mean, it's sad how much like venom is out there. Like if you only vote this way, you're a Christian. And it's like, what in the world? Or if you only this, or how could you believe this? I mean, there's just, we're not confronting evil with grace and we're confronting evil. We love that. But we confront the evil behavior with grace and generosity is what Jesus says. He says, don't let your anger and pride ruin your relationships. Don't let your anger and pride. Jesus would say, hey, you know what? You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you even have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. He says, and if someone is taking you to court, settle it before you get to court. Because when you go to court, they will take everything. You ever double down on something? You know, like you were wrong, like in a relationship and you were like, I am not saying I'm sorry. (laughs) You ever done that? And you let that play out to the end and now you're sleeping on the couch for like a week and a half or weeks. I am not saying I'm sorry. Like eventually your pride, eventually your anger will cost you a relationship. And that's what Jesus is driving home in some of those teachings. That when we get anger, when our pride boils up, we settle it because if it goes to the extreme, a relationship gets ruined, which if we early on just admit that we're wrong, that's the implication, right? You're being taken to court. You're, you're going to lose. So admit that you're wrong. Work it out because it's going to become so light for a relationship. Don't let it ruin your relationships. Here's a fun one that's a merciful one. This is great. We all love this one. Forgive everyone and everything. Hey, that's what Jesus tells us. Oh, forgive everyone and everything. You can't hold on forgiveness in your heart and receive grace. Jesus would put it this way. You got to forgive if you want to be forgiven. And I don't think Jesus is talking about a transaction. I think Jesus is expressing a spiritual truth that you cannot truly live in the forgiveness of God when you're holding unforgiveness. You can't receive it. There's a spiritual blockage there, right? We spiritually get constipated. (laughs) Is it easy? Absolutely not. But Jesus says, you gotta forgive or your heavenly father won't forgive you. And it's not that you're not forgiven. It's that you can't receive it. You can't live in the freedom it, it holds you up just to go with the constipation metaphor. It binds you. You gotta, you gotta be free. You gotta release that, that freedom of forgiveness. And the way you do that is you don't pass judgment on others. Jesus said that. Don't judge. Hold your judgments back. Again, like we've missed this one within church. Like that's like the backbone of Western evangelicalism. We have judged everybody. You're wrong for believing this and you're wrong. We can make our judgments, but to pass that on to someone, to allow that to determine how we love and interact is extremely, extremely problematic. It it divides the, the, the church. So we just withhold our judgments and then love your enemies. Jesus couldn't possibly mean that. Does he know what our enemies have done to us? Does he know what our enemies could do to us? He says, love your enemies. Here's the thing. <laughs> this, is, this is a lot harder than repeat after me, let's pray a prayer and then we all get to go to heaven. But this is the stuff that actually transforms the world. And so now we move to what does it mean to walk humbly? How does Jesus talk about walking humbly with God? All right, have you, have you been drinking from the fire hose already? <laughs> like, so here it is, the idea of religion, the idea of this relationship that is kind of like vertical, right? If, if justice and mercy are about, in some senses, are about our horizontal relationships with God's creation, now, now Jesus is, will talk, or I'll talk about the ways in which Jesus tells us about this vertical relationship with God. Now, I actually don't believe that the two are separated, but I just want us in our minds to understand that's the way we traditionally think of it. Our actual vertical relationship with God is very much determined by a horizontal one, which is why Jesus talks about forgiveness the way he does. 
So here's some things that Jesus said about faith and this vertical relationship with God, which we oftentimes think of religion as helping facilitate. First thing Jesus would say is you have to examine the fruit of religious doctrines. I love it. You don't examine the interior logic. You don't examine how much of it's based on the Old Testament or the New Testament. You look at the fruit and Jesus would say like this, prophets will come and they'll prophesy and they'll give all these words, but here's the deal. Watch the fruit. Watch the fruit. If it frees people, if it brings hope, if it brings joy, if it brings love, if it brings unity, if it brings the fruits of the spirit is what we would say, like from what Paul would, then then you have a good doctrine. But if that doctrine is producing depression and pain and heartache and suicidal thoughts, if that depression is pushing, if that doctrine is pushing people away from the love of God that is universal, then you go, I don't care what logic it comes from, there's a problem. Because if God is love, and God produces wholeness, if I have a doctrine that continues to fracture a person, if I have a doctrine around, and there were all kinds of doctrines that were messed up around why are people sick, right? Doctrines around sexuality, doctrines that that are producing a lot of pain, and Jesus says, look at the fruit of it. Look at the fruit of the belief. Look at the fruit of the teaching. Look at the fruit. Jesus would say this, avoid conventional conventional wisdom, it only leads to death. Now, what does that mean? So uh, uh, Marcus Borg, who's a Jesus scholar, did a lot of work and he talks about conventional wisdom. And then I love what he says. He says, good people practicing conventional wisdom killed Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus's life and he pressed against the conventional wisdom of the religion of his day, he pressed into the economics of it. He pressed into what it mean, meant to be a citizen. He pressed into all these conventional wisdom, the way in which we see the world. And it was good people thinking conventionally that killed Jesus. We oh, it's the big sins, the big bad sins, the ones that are the hot sins, you know, that we love to talk about in the Western evangelical church. But it's the reality of it's Jesus is disrupting everything. That's what killed Jesus. That's why Jerusalem killed Jesus because he messed with their economics. (laughs) I mean, we don't know that, we don't think about it, but when Jesus goes in and turns over the temple, when Jesus in the whole message is like, your sins are forgiven, The financial structures of the whole culture were being upended by that. When John is out in the desert, right, and he says, come out and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and we get so caught up in the baptism, but you know what the real heartbeat of that is? The forgiveness of God is as available to you as water, as water. Now, that's very different than what they had been taught that the forgiveness of God is available through bringing in the right sacrifices, which you have to buy at the temple and you buy it at the temple at a premium and you pay all this. I mean, all of the whole economic structure was being upended by the releasing of God's freedom and grace. So it was the conventional wisdom, right? So Jesus would talk about, I think, ways in which you say, oh, hold on a second. And, and I, this is, this, where this comes from is, you've heard this, broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. Think about it. Conventional wisdom is the way in which we think about this world and we think about economics and we think about how to treat our enemies and we think about God, but there's a very narrow way that can turn the jet right side up. So that's where this idea of conventional wisdom, the way I talk about it comes from. This is one of my favorites. Uh, Jesus would say, don't fall for religious glamour shots. Who in the room, who online you had glamour shots? Raise your hand up nice and high, just own it. You child of the 80s, glamour shots, right? You go over to somebody's house, you see a picture on the wall, you're like, who's that? They're like, that's me. I'm like, what? <laughs> I 
right? The glamour shot studios, I remember those in the 90s, you know, it was like everybody got to be a supermodel, airbrush, and you realize like how crazy it is, right? Jesus would say it like this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God, right? It's lipstick on a pig, you know? So that's how Jesus would say it. And then this one's another one. This is how Jesus would say it. He'd say, don't practice religion and learn doctrine at the expense of doing the will of God. Don't practice religion, go to church, follow all the rules, learn all the things you're supposed to believe at the expense of doing the will of God. Jesus would say it this way. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father, right? So we can do all the right religious things, all the right stuff. We believe all the right doctrines, but we're never doing the will of God. We're never entering the blessed life. Jesus actually said, you got to practice the big three, give, pray, and fast. These three spiritual habits are a part of every, every major religion in the world. Like it's just a part of spiritual health. You give of your money you pray and you fast, these three things. But you do it, Jesus says, with sincerity and generosity. You don't do it for shame and honor because Jesus was part of a shame and honor system. And so you would pray in such a way that people would be impressed with you and you'd have honor. You'd give in such a way that people would be impressed with you and you'd have honor. You'd fast in such a way that people would be impressed with you and you'd have honor. And Jesus says, uh-uh. You do these things. You give, you fast, and you pray, but you do it in private. You don't let people see what it is. Now, does that mean you're not supposed to know what you write on the check? No. <laughs> right? It just means your heart in it is sincere and there's a generousness to it. It's not about me, it's about others. And then Jesus would say, put your trust in God, not in money. That's a tough one in our Western world. But he would say, the biggest chunk, do you know the biggest chunk of the Sermon on the Mount is spent on this principle right here? Put your trust in God, not in money. It's amazing how that's such a reality. No matter what culture you live in, no matter when you live, whatever our currency is, it's really easy to slip into that's where my trust lies. But Jesus says the entrance into the kingdom, right? This blessed life, this way of living, it's this fundamental. Your, Your trust can't be in money. Can't be in money. And then he says this, invest your wisdom and time carefully, he said, well, what does that have to, well, that's walking humbly with God because it's recognizing I have to pause and, and I have to understand where does God, where is love requiring me to give wisdom and time? Jesus would use words like, don't cast your pearls to swine because they'll trample on it. So you got to know where to invest. Where do I give my time? Where do I give my wisdom? Is a person at a space where they can receive it or is it a person at a space where they're just gonna throw it away? And I put this in this context of walk humbly with God because we all have this deep desire to bring Jesus to people and that's wonderful and we should. We're called to make disciples, but we have to leverage wisdom and time to know when a person's ready to receive and God has brought them to that journey and we have to just watch that. So we invest our wisdom and time carefully. Pretty easy stuff. That's it. There's the sweet 16. This is what the works are. This is what the works are. This is what I believe if we're going to pull up from the nosedive as a church, as followers of Jesus, that we have to start living into these things. We have to start raising ourselves up, raising us up in these as individuals who've been following Jesus for a long time. And this is what it means, I think, to train people and to teach people all that Jesus commanded. That's what he says. He says, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. This seems to me the heartbeat of what Jesus taught. And we live these things out in different times. And so the point here is this, as we kind of wrap up the last two weeks, (laughs) is that the works 
of an everyday normal peacemaker can save us from the inevitable nosedive of Western Christianity, of a Christianity that has become more about culture that we live in and the values of our culture than the actual values of Jesus. And it's been tricky. But this is what we can actually save ourselves from sin, right? The nosedive that leads us into the convention. We can actually pull up. We can actually save ourselves. And, and, and it's okay to use that language. James uses it, right? He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith? And for James, when he's talking about faith, he's talking about beliefs. Jesus, when he talks about faith, he's talking about trust in God. So Jesus is saying, well, James is saying, well, if you say you have faith, you have the right beliefs. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, all that stuff, but you don't have works. Like, what good is that? He says, can that faith save him or her or anyone for that matter? He goes on, he says, if a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of you says to them, go in peace, go in wholeness, go and be full, go and flourish, keep warm, eat well, but you do not give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? What good is it? I think the reality is, our Western evangelical church for a long time has walked away from and been enamored by certainty of doctrines and beliefs. We've wanted to know who's in and who's out. We wanted to make this about getting out of this earth and getting into heaven. And I just don't know that that was ever Jesus's intent. Jesus' intent was offering us a different path. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But it's not to get out of hell. It's to bring heaven here. What did Jesus say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know where heaven is. <laughs> I don't know about that. I know this is mystery. But I do know this, that Jesus is trying to bring it here through the church. That's what we're being offered. And I think it does come through the church, through individuals and through groups. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What does it mean for Crossroads to be, to continue to evolve and to become a collective of peacemakers and peacemaking groups, that this is the heartbeat of our church, to express this is what God is inviting us into. That's next week. But before we get there, there's a lot of stuff we talked about today. Did something stick in your mind or in your heart? And I wanna encourage you this week, maybe God's inviting you into a couple of things. Maybe God is inviting you to read over those 16 works of a peacemaker. Read them, just read them every, don't read all the Bible passages, read them over every day this week. Just get it in your soul, get it in your heart. Maybe you wanna take one day and read the verses that are alongside of it. If you, they're all in Matthew. If you're new to Bible study, you can jump in and, and go to online. You can go to biblegateway.com or version, or just type in Matthew 5. It'll show up, Google is, it's like Google is the Holy Spirit in so many ways, right? Just, what, just ask Google, right? Google will help you. Find Matthew 5, believe it or not. And, and you can read the passages along and see how I've tried to take that into language that makes sense for us today in a way. Maybe God's inviting you to explore that. Now, if you really wanna like go for it, you start asking God, all right, God, <laughs> Spirit, show me what I struggle with out of these 16. Show me the ones that are most hard for me. And will you give me the wisdom and strength? Will you transform me? Will you help me live them out? I said at the very beginning of this series that if you made it through this week, I'd be impressed. In so many ways, the teachings of Jesus, you can understand why someone would go away sad because it seemed too much. 
Right? Jesus calls us out of ourselves. And this way of Jesus is not filling rooms. <laughs> this way of Jesus is filling hearts. This way of Jesus is, is light in the world, keeps everything, it's leaven. And so I hope that this will start to make sense that what you start to hear in here and what you're hearing around here and what's been a part of this church for a long time are these principles. I think one thing about Crossroads that I loved when I started to have conversations was that this was a church that was not going to base its love on people around doctrine. It was gonna base its love for people around Jesus. And I think that's powerful. But I can tell you, God is inviting you to a cross. God is inviting you to a life of death and resurrection over and over and over again, over and over and over again. And so the song we have for you to wrap up is called Lead Me to the Cross. The mystery of the cross, the language that we don't know how to use, that every generation uses different metaphors to understand the love that is expressed in the cross. But I love this line, this part of the song that says, lead me to the cross where your love poured out. That's the truth. And it's a mystery how the love was poured out, but your love is poured out. It says, bring me to my knees. Now listen to this. Lord, I lay me down. I lay me down. Rid me of myself. I belong to you. Like that's discipleship. That's the way of the cross. That's the cruciform life. That's the kenosis that we see in Jesus from the words that we used in the past weeks. And it just says, lead me, lead me to the cross. That's the beautiful image of the cross for our lives. Death and resurrection, death and resurrection. I'll be back in a second to pray for you.